hola, hola Charlito. Charlito. Hola Charlie. Char. Hey Charlie. Okay Charlie. Is your name Charles? It's Charlie, not Charles. Hello, everyone. You are tuned in to Charlie Not Charles podcast. And today we have another special guest, the 2018 Global Fulbright Scholar, two-time author, the teacher, the activist, the founder of John Jay's Prison to College Pipeline Program, director of Incarceration Nations, a New York native, a carnival aficionado, but most importantly, the really good homie, Dr. Boz Drazinger. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. I'm glad oh. you included carnival aficionado in oh, there. It's, you know I had it's to. Critical. That's so, that's so is part resistance. of who you are. I know, I know. We'll, we'll get into carnival because carnival for me was probably the best party experience ever. And, you know, I tell all my friends, you have to experience carnival. You have to. But we'll get into that. How are you feeling? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. It's good to see you. I'm always happy to be talking about smart, good, revolutionary shit with good people. So that's right. I'm that's a word. Good. That's a word. That's a word. So how do you feel being back in New York under these very unusual circumstances? I'm losing my mind a little bit. Right, right. This is easily so the longest that I have stayed put in any place. Right. In years upon years, I'm usually, I mean, you know, I'm usually in a different country every other week, basically. Right. Yeah. And so staying put has been hard. Not being able to have access to prisons has been hard. Um, trying to exist virtually, you know, right. this is not an easy time. And ju- also just absorbing the suffering of the world right now. Right. And how do you, like, how do you see, uh, um, like, how the nation is reacting to, to not only... Uh, you know, being shut down due to COVID, but, you know, obviously we've been in the front lines, you know, just the other day, you and I, we were out there marching. Uh, How do you feel that the government, the people overall are reacting to uh, the George Floyd, the, you know, all the other injustices that are happening in this country? I mean, really, it's a, I feel manic depressive about it, if I'm honest, Um, because on some days you feel a sense of being energized and inspired by folks being galvanized and the level of re-education that's happening in spaces that you would not expect. Uh, And, and of course, the energy of the the revolutionary protests and the uprisings and and the energy of, of just the voices that are rising up. Um, and the energy of, especially in the space of, of justice, imagining the wor- words like abolition aren't such dirty words anymore. So there's a lot that I can wake up feeling excited about. But at the same time, I'm not going to lie, I feel disappointed at things. And maybe it's me being impatient, uh, having been doing this work for a long time. But I feel disappointed that I'm not seeing enough big picture systemic change yet. And I'll try to remind myself that things don't happen overnight. You know, right. Babylon doesn't fall overnight. Right, right. We got to be patient and we got to keep pushing and pushing and that, you know, steps, I, I'm not, incremental steps are still steps, but 
I definitely feel a sense of frustration. I've also been very, because I'm much more local than I've ever been and been in staying here in New York for longer than I've ever been, I've, I've really been focused on what's changing and what isn't changing right here in New York City. Right. And I'm not seeing enough that I feel excited about on all fronts, you know, because to me, justice is holistic. It's not just police reform or prison, you know, prison measures. We have to think about all of it, education, health care, um, all kinds of equity, and I feel frustrated that there isn't more happening in right. a radical sense. Okay, and, but but you're also talking about a local level. You're not seeing any efforts on a local level um, where where either you know whether it's the government, whether it's uh, it's private corporations stepping up. You and I we spoke about it, uh, you know, briefly about just corporate spaces giving up their spaces for for schooling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just for social justice causes, knowing that they're not going to have their employees there, mm-hmm. uh, yet they have these open spaces not being utilized. Yeah, why aren't we radically changing our idea of what curriculums are? Right. Um, why don't we turn the streets into schools, <laughs> right. you know, and and reinvent what what we're doing when we educate people? Where's the healthcare reform? You know, where and and we know that. Uh, all of the the systemic racism that fuels this crisis in policing and mass incarceration is is thriving in the healthcare industry. And since COVID, have we seen any systemic change? And I'm not trying to be negative because I'm actually a fundamental optimist. Right. But I but I think it's been really hard, and that's why I say manic depressive. While I feel excited by the discourse. I want to see more like radical undoing of structures and systems and rethinking the fundamental purpose of what we do when we do justice, when we do education, when we talk about health care, when we talk about mental health, all of these things. You know, it, it's funny that you say that because I agree. You know, we have to look at it at all from all sides. And there has been no conversation about health care. You know, it's been publicized everywhere. So we can't uh, not act due to lack of information. It's known that COVID affected disproportionately black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. Yet there has been no legislation, no, well, I'm sure there, there has been some proposals, by, by, but nothing is getting done. No, and our hospitals are still a mess. I mean, there was, I, I was talking to a doctor the other day who was saying that during COVID, there was this special allowance for resources and supplies to be shared between hospitals. And that ended. And where's the, where's the systemic change? Right. I'm glad we have more PPE equipment and things like that, but th- that's Band-Aids. Right. We need to rethink healthcare in a radical way and, and all of our systems and structures. And that was what we kind of thought was going to happen. I think that's part of what fuels my sense of disappointment is that, you know, when the pandemic hit, there was a sense of apocalypse and a death and a rebirth. And instead, I definitely feel like as we get more and more in this space of, of pandemic fatigue and quarantine fatigue and, and all of that, we're, we're actually slipping back into, quote, normalcy right. more. And that scares me because, and I understand where it's coming from. We're tired. We're depressed. We're frustrated. Right. We're, you know, we, we want to live life non-virtually again and, and in a more complete way. And so the urge becomes moving towards normalcy and being tired of just, you know, the fight and the struggle. Right. Um, so it's it's a hard time. You get a sense that people are just trying to survive right now, uh, whether it's because of lack of employment. Uh, you and I briefly discussed before, you know, the federal uh, unemployment was not extended. Uh, so that's $600 less for people that were collecting unemployment that they do not have on a weekly basis. 
you know, a lot of lay, layoffs. Uh, you know, people are just trying to figure it out. You know, parents are at home with their kids, uh, not probably having the tools to teach their kids, the patience to teach their kids, but they're also at home trying to do that and yet also work from home. It's just, it's just too much. It's mm-hmm. a lot going on. But back to you, okay? I know you received a Fulbright a few years ago. So you can basically go anywhere and do research, right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm actually still a current Fulbright specialist scholar. Oh, okay, okay. Which is, well, it, everything's on hold. Right. <laughs> um, so, but, but, but yeah, it, it's, uh, the Fulbright is an amazing opportunity that allows you to, to travel and do research in affiliation with institutions. And the, the one that I had in 2018 was around uh, restorative justice and mm-hmm. truth and reconciliation commissions globally. So I spent time in South Africa, which is my other home, and, and Chile and Rwanda, thinking about truth and reconciliation on a global scale. Okay. It's become especially relevant now because uh, there has been a lot of talk, and I wrote an article about the need for a truth and reconciliation commission here in the U.S., along with a new constitution and all kinds of other um, really important radical measures. And in that time also is, is when I really connected globally with organizations doing work on justice reimagining and prison reform and, right. and started the Incarceration Nations Network and launched Prison to College Pipeline South Africa. And I have a lot of projects in the works now as a Fulbright specialist. It's a really great opportunity to partner with organizations in various places for kind of shorter term consultancy projects. Right. So um, a part of partner in Nigeria. We have plans on on developing some programs there with university prison partnerships, uh, Brazil as well, returning to South Africa. Right. So, so, but South Africa seems to be, you chose to live in South Africa, correct? Yeah. I mean, Why I, South Africa out of all the places? I know you, you are probably one of the most well-traveled friends that I have. And out of all the places you chose South Africa, why? Well, I think actually my my axis of life is Caribbean, New York, South Africa. Okay. Um, I made a special commitment to South Africa, and and uh, and still have that special commitment because I really I think this happens to a lot of people who go to South Africa. And you came and visited me yes. when I was there, um, and so you know. But when you go there, it's it's just a mind-blowing place in terms of its legacy, its history, its energy, its beauty, its complexity, um, its nuanced, you know, there's so much nuance and there's, it's just a, it's almost a sensory overload and um, an emotional overload and intellectual overload. And as a person who tends towards extremes in life and um, overloading on, on passion, which is kind of my specialty for better and for worse, I fell in love with South Africa, and that's right. what drew me there, and and continues to bring me back. And it's I always say it's not it's not like it's not an easy place to. If you find it easy to love, you don't know it. Right. The things that are really beautiful are insanely beautiful. The things that are ugly are insanely right. ugly. And yes. South Africa has been in my spirit, especially heavy now because of what it's going through in COVID, and and I'm very scared for the future there. Right, you know, and have a lot of loved ones, and people are suffering, and the you know the unemployment rate was for for some populations upwards of twenty five percent, twenty eight percent to begin with, and now it's worse, and you know it's a scary time. But yeah. I I have 
I stream South African radio <laughs> constantly. Um, I still remain very um, spiritually grounded there. Okay. Do you see yourself going back to South Africa? Absolutely. Okay. But like living, living in South Africa. I don't know that I um, you know, could ever live in one place. Okay. I, I feel like my heart is divided. I, I have a lot of places in the world that resonate with me. Right. And then I think those three regions, I mean, especially Jamaica, Trinidad and the Caribbean, New York will always be in my blood as right. a native New Yorker and right. native Bronxite um, and, and South Africa also. So I see, I see life as being a configuration of those, but right. everything's hard to predict these days. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I agree in that my experience with, with South Africa was pretty, I hate to use mental illness as a way to describe things, but it was pretty bi- bipolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we enjoyed ourselves in, in the nice restaurants, uh, it was beautiful. But then I made sure, and, and you made sure, that I visited the townships, um, that I went to the prison to, to see, you know, South Africa, Cape Town as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, shout out to the guys at Gangstar Cafe, local business, you know, employing formerly incarcerated persons. And shout to MT, who actually is... Uh, Gave us the tour. Yeah, yeah shout, he's actually going to be on our Incarceration Nations Network live on Monday, talking with Devon Simmons, who's... Uh, the International Ambassador for Incarceration Nations Network. Dope, dope, dope. And DeVos Simmons is also a superstar. Shout out to him. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll get into, uh, you know, Incarceration Nations Network. That's, uh, you know, you have a lot going on with that, right? Yeah. So yeah. what's what's next for that? You know, so just explain what Incarceration Nations Network is. So it's a, it's a network that basically grew out of my book, which is Incarceration Nations, about prisons around the world. And I just sort of naturally started connecting with folks doing this work all over. And uh, it, it, it naturally led to the birth of other prison-to-college pipeline movements in different right. countries and just all kinds of collaborations. And so I formalized that by starting a network. And we are a global network of organizations doing various aspects of prison reform and justice reimagining globally. We have partners on every continent and doing a range of things from advocacy work, broad ranging advocacy work to education work behind bars to restorative justice Mm -hmm. and diversion and mediation. And it's all, we're kind of a cheerleader and an amplifier for uh, a global and a global coalition builder for our partners. And so we've got a whole host of projects in the works. And in fact, accelerated during COVID times, uh, in part because we're all, you know, we're all homebound. And so, and and in part because this is really a moment in history, and especially in part because prison populations are especially vulnerable to COVID. And what we're seeing now is a radical decarceration happening all over the world. I mean, we're right here in the state of New Jersey that's talking about releasing 20% of its prison population. And there are countries that have done that for their countrywide prison population. So we are advocating and amplifying on behalf of our partners in partnership with our partners, developing advocacy toolkits on all kinds of issues like virtual justice, alternative to incarceration. And we also were very much focused on culture change. I mean, I wear a lot of hats and uh, so my world is populated by all kinds of people from all walks of, of life. And my philosophy is that in order to create change, you need to have all those kinds of people together. Right. And so we are working on a short documentary series about global mass incarceration. We have an art installation called The Writing on the Wall that we're right. using to amplify right. our partners' efforts and uh, and get folks seen. And I think it's important for people to know that 
while prison, quote unquote, prison reform has gone pretty mainstream in the U.S. in the last number of years, um, even though it wasn't when I first started doing this work, it wasn't mainstream at all. But it's gone mainstream in the rest of the world, with the exception of one or two other countries. Really, nobody wants to talk about prison. Nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants to see formerly incarcerated folks in any position of power. There's just a, a vengefulness and a and an ignorance around this stuff. So it's really all about leveraging global coalition for the cause in a big way. I think, you know, I think you would agree that we've seen a lot of change since the first time I met you as far as prison reform. Mm -hmm. You know, when I met you, you were teaching at John Jay, right? You were teaching as a professor at John Jay, but also you were were finding, or you had founded already, uh, the prison to college pipeline in John Jay. And I just want to thank you for for exposing me to to that environment, you know, um, you brought me up for a class. I remember I taught one of your classes. I, I believe it was Fourth Amendment, unreasonable search and seizure, and I think we analyzed Jay Z's yep. uh, song Ninety Nine Problems, yep. but you know A One, yep. and you know so many Fourth Amendment references in that song, and I had so much fun, but also so much respect for the students that 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 I got to know. You know, again, I thank you because of that. You know, who would have known, you know, at that time I would have not known that I would have been so inspired that I would have been doing the same thing. You know, fast forward two years after that, uh, you know, working at a prison to college pipeline program that was pretty similar to yours. Actually, that was really inspired by yours. Shout out to Dean Kenya Tyson at a university that I'm not going to, you know, say on the record because, you know. Amazing program. An and amazing no, program. No, but it's, it's beautiful to hear that because yeah. over the years, I mean, I founded Prison to College Pipeline a decade ago. And over the years, I brought up so many people who had their lives changed. Right. And that includes students. It includes, right. you know, professors and practitioners like you. Right. Artists, filmmakers, yeah. and what it does to you to to experience that is life changing, and that's a big part of why I started the program. It's like we got to break down that wall. It can't just be that population over there. Right, right. You know, and and I did that because obviously, uh, not knowing, you know, and I thought I was pretty progressive, but I also knew that. I was still carrying some biases and prejudices of people that were incarcerated. That's an understatement. We were we were arguing. I remember Charlie. Right, yeah, you know, I wasn't quite ready to uh, get to where you're where you were at, right? Um, and I needed to to really do the work and and actually expose myself to the environment of incarcerated uh, education. Um, and when I tell you, I met the brightest, the kindest, um, and you know, informative, the most inquisitive. Uh, students in prison, you know, I will not be, you know, I'm not lying when I say that. And, um, you know, and I know you, you're, you know, no offense, you're one of the most intense people I know that you breathe the work that you do. You breathe the work that you do. And um, I remember I was teaching a class and I think we were ending the semester and I was so inspired, so motivated. Um, Also, like you, uh, you know, feeling somewhat disappointed at the overall system um, in the predicament that they were in, many of them, uh, you know, serving life in jail, um, that as I was uh, as I was relaying my appreciation for them, all of a sudden I started to realize that uh, my voice started trembling, you know, my pitch started going, you know, getting high. And, um, and, and one of the students goes, uh, Ch- Mr. Professor Vargas, Professor Vargas. 
are you are, are you about to cry, Professor Vargas? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? But I didn't realize that I was getting a bit emotional because you just, you know, it's an intense feeling. Um, it's, you know, that you can leave and you, and you know that they cannot. And you know that, um, that most of the population that's in there um, come from communities where education um, wasn't prevalent, where, uh, you know, they grew up in poverty and systemic racism. Um, this is so, their first chance at education. This is the that's first why chance. I always object to people talking about second chances. Yeah. You know, this is the first chance. So, and- how, so how do you do So, you know, that's my question to you. How, because you live it, because you breathe it, what do you do? to kind of detach yourself from it? There is no detaching yourself from it. I mean, if I had a dime for every time I cried in doing this work, I would be a very rich woman <laughs> on a yacht right now. It's, it's not, there's no way to detach and there's no way to do this. It's not an intellectual exercise. It will never be. Uh, so I don't have some formula for it. Um, and I also wouldn't want to operate in that space. Uh, in fact, one of the things you and I were just talking about on the way over here was the way in in this moment, doing this work, you know, virtually, not being able to enter prisons for the moment, not being able to, you know, be on the ground, on the front lines, in the trenches with the work, uh, feels very joyless because the rewards are the humanness and the rewards are that intensity that you describe. I mean, I used manic depressive earlier. I think that's sort of a theme for doing justice work. Justice work, if you're really doing it um, in the truest sense of your soul and self, is very manic depressive. The highs are very high. The rewards are, you know, by rewards, I mean the emotional rewards of seeing the fruits of, of your labor and being able to connect with some of the most brilliant, beautiful human beings. The rewards are incredible, but the lows are very, at times, unbearable. So whether it's somebody you love getting denied parole, whether, you know, it's it's experiencing folks coming home and and facing the hardships of reentry and then not being able to get where you want to see them get um being let down by people that you are deeply committed to who get caught up in the system again for all kinds of systemic reasons like it never gets easy mm-hmm. at all and actually right. if it ever got easy i would sit myself down because right. this can't be like i said an intellectual exor- exercise right. your whole being has to be in this work right um but you know that you said, have to do self-care you have to y- take yeah care of i mean you know i you said carnival a lot of times people be like how hey, you do this work i'm like carnival and for me carnival is not just a party it's a spiritual experience right, it's right. an exercise of joy it's an exercise of freedom yes. and liberation and all those things so like for me, music and kind of Caribbean music, particularly South African music, like that is is like feeds my soul. How are, you, how are you dealing with Carnival being canceled this year or next year? Should I say? Listen, I don't even want to talk about yeah. it. I yeah. don't want to. I mean, I feel deeply, you know, deprived of a ritual. It's a ritual that is life affirming. You need to affirm life and as much as possible. And I think the thing that I got very good at doing is really this kind of I call it the inhale exhale is that when I'm in a very beautiful place you know in Table Mountain in South Africa or at Carnival I I really consciously like inhale that beauty because I know that I'm going to need to exhale it when I go into some very dark 
spaces. Right. And, right. you know, both literal dark spaces and emotional dark spaces. Right. So you have to really, you know, I, I live hard. You know, you describe me as intense. I say yeah. passionate, whatever it is. Right. But I feel things very deeply. And right. so that means that you have to feel the joy just as deeply as you feel the trauma and the pain and the right. suffering. And and that's the yin and the yang of that's life. That's the yin and the yang, right, right. And, you know, and just going back to carnival, like I said before, carnival was a spiritual experience for me. And I encourage everyone to go. You know, the music, the same damn four songs that they play, right, that they force <laughs> you to listen to, you know. But it's, you know, I don't know if it's a strategy, but when the beat drops... You know, when the melody comes in, you know it because you've been listening to the same four songs the whole time. Um, you know, the beautiful bodies, you know, the types of people. I've met some really interesting people at Carnival, uh, you know, from all walks of life, from many different countries. I found it to be very safe. Um, and, um, and you know, it's, it's something beautiful about waking up at 3.30 in the morning to go to a party. Most you know, definitely. I have while, to say- while the sun is rising. The most beautiful protest that I went to, uh, actually, in all of these, I mean, there was at least two or three weeks where I was going to a protest every single day. Mm. And the most beautiful one was organized by one of the Caribbean organizations in Brooklyn. And they were playing soca and they were playing reggae. Mm. And everybody, you know, people were like dancing down the street in protest. And for me, it was that beautiful moment where it was so obvious that carnival is a form of liberation and a form right. of protest and a form of affirmation of life right. in ways that is the very essence of what Black Lives Matter is about. Right, right, yeah, yeah. You know, and, um, and by the way, I was given a job at carnival. The person that hired me to teach at a university uh, was backing that up, was backing that thing up. And she was like, are you Mr. Vargas? And I was like, yes. And, um, and she was like, I think I'm supposed to be sending you an email. Uh, you got the job, by the way. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. And um, so, again, a really great experience. Not the not the most inexpensive uh, trip. You know, it can get a bit pricey, but but definitely... Uh, well, I will say that in the, in the name of, you know, we're talking about progress and, and things that we're seeing in this moment, there is talk about there, that there, in Trinidad there will be a carnival. It's just going to be for locals. Okay, and, and that's good because that's I think the locals should be able to enjoy gotten, and afford yeah. it, yeah. It's gotten out of hand with prices, right. and it's not accessible to to most <laughs> Trinidadians. Right. So the idea of returning, scaling things down, and returning things to the local, and that is also something that we've seen here in New York. You know, in terms of just gatherings in parks and different kinds of solidarity building and vibes building. Right. That right. doesn't have to be like we're up in the club exactly. and in the fancy brunch and right, all that. Right. 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 But uh, but going back to self care, right? You, you do meditate. Do you, you have to meditate? I, you know, before all this, I could say that I never formally meditated. I have other kinds of meditation. Exercise is a meditation for me. Okay. Walking, I'm a big walker. And that's actually where I get a lot of my ideas as a writer and as a, you know, as an, as an activist, as an artist, whatever right. it is. Um, the first, I only recently started formally meditating. And that's because of, I've got to deal with the overload of what, we're taking in taking today in, in the news on on social media all of it you know your peers right it's just a lot all of it's it I, I read i mean i read the paper start to finish every day numerous news outlets it's just part of what i do and it's part of staying in tune and i for the first time in my life 
I have to stop myself mm. from taking in too much. Right. And I've never had to do that. And I, I do some pretty intense work and right. and read some pretty intense things. But I'm being mindful now that I need to stop because of the anxiety it's producing. And so to counter some of that, I actually started more formal meditations, and which has been great. But I think there's a lot of different ways to do meditation. Dancing is a meditation right. to me. Uh, for sure. And I know that being, you know, in a musical space in this moment has been the thing that can lift me out most of all. Um, and art overall, I mean, art is the ultimate form of self-care. Right. And I don't think that I also, that's something in this moment, I don't think I've ever appreciated that more. So whether it's reading poetry every day um, films and series. There's, you know, series that I'm watching. I never used to watch right. is TV. There, is there one that you particularly like right now? I'm going to tell you that I am knee deep in The Good Place. Okay. This okay. is... Have a, you watched it? It's utterly brilliant. Really? And it is a true work of philosophy. And it is a narrative... There's a narrative creativity there that is blowing my mind. Like, really? I've actually not been this, this excited about a series um, <laughs> in a long time. And I, like I said, I don't usually get to... I, I've previously watched everything on airplanes. This is the first time that I'm, like, watching stuff at home. Right. Um, but I'm appreciating the artistry of that. Right. And it's actually really useful for me as I'm you know, starting to work on my next book, which will be very different narratively. Yes, we'll talk, you know, a, a very much necessary book, just like Incarceration Nations was or is, continues to be. Um, I must say, I, you know, I've been watching uh, I May Destroy You. Oh, so triggering. She tackles on so many issues. She does it with so much creativity, unapologetically. Um, you know, you have to, you know, you have to fight to, to understand the words because you know you know you know people from Britain you know they give you water they don't give you water they give you water but uh, I've loved every episode I think she's on the sixth episode I've also uh, had a good time watching Rami have, have you heard of Rami I think it was on Hulu I haven't um, it was about an Egyptian uh, Muslim a young man but it's like comedy at the same time trying to like figure it out and it was like brilliant comedy and it also shows a different side of the Muslim culture um, that is not so, you know, stereotypical. Um, so I, I like seeing the diversity in the comedy and and um, in the binge watching that I've been seeing. Also, for whatever reason, I've been watching Indian matchmaking. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my list. It's on your list? Um, you know, it's actually very interesting. The colorism is yeah ridiculous. Like, if I had a dollar each time someone said I wanted someone fair, fair skin, you know, I would be... You know, if only they meant just and fair. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, there's right, been right. a lot of talk about about right. that along right. those lines. Right. I watched a series called Wild Wild Country, also, which was about a, um, for lack of a better term, cult that that started in India that then ended up taking over a whole town in right. in Oregon. That was absolutely fascinating to me. Um, also, in thinking about some of my work moving forward. Yeah. So, see, this is like therapy, right? You know, you're you're it allowing is. yourself to like. Get away from the work, not not forgetting the work, but just getting away from the work so you can go back with a, with a, with a fresh perspective. You know, I've been doing meditating every day, and this is the first time that I've been doing that every day. Um, I wake up, I meditate maybe about 15, 20 page, I mean, 15 to 20 minutes, and then I write two pages. Um, and, you know, and I write, and I don't judge my writing. Whatever I write about, I write about. Um, but but I, I find that it calms me down, 
and it, and it clears my mind and I'm walking around with less anxiety um, and less triggered when I see a post or, you know, when mm-hmm. I see what, you know, his president is doing or saying, you know, we're not going to get Thank into that. Thank you for that. not saying his name. Yes, 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 I yes. I don't say his name. I don't even want to, you know, I don't I even feel good saying. I call him the man who occupies saying, the White House. Exactly. I don't even feel right saying the president. Mm-hmm. But um, you do some self-care because it's very necessary. Um, but also there is some joy in getting those phone calls from uh you know, your, your, your students, you know, once they're released and they're doing amazing things, you and I both know of, of, of former incarcerated students that are about to go to law school, right? You know, getting jobs, you know, becoming entrepreneurs, doing well for themselves. How much joy does that bring you? Oh, God, there's, it's indescribable. In right. fact, this week, I saw two of my former students who are, are uh, three of them, rather, and it's... Uh, you know, every time one of them in particular were really, really close and he was locked up at 16. He's a poet. He's part of the writing on the wall. He's doing amazing things in the world. And he's just one of the most profound thinkers I know. And we sat for three hours and just talked about life and 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 poetry and right. writing and all kinds of things. And I mean, I just feel like for me, it's it's such an honor to have been a part of their lives and their growth and development in ways that are go above and beyond. I mean, the the relationships, I wasn't just their professor for a semester, you know, I was I was with them through the education through their induction into the educational process and right. through the reentry process and it's a relationship like none other. I know I've seen it. I've witnessed it. You know, some of them even treat you as their own mother. Well, I mean, that's an honor and it's a love that transcends all else. Like it's a really, really, really great, great kind of love that that really I can't compare to anything else. So it's the greatest reward. And I think after 10 years of the program um, and also now I've got students and, and folks overseas, South African students who are coming home too and reach out and it to 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 see that and to see um you know the 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 fruits of your labor and to see people flourish and it's it's indescribable right right and do you see this country investing more in prison to co- college pipeline programs and seeing it more as a mandatory reentry well, solution we just had some major legislation passed around uh access to financial aid which okay. is fantastic uh, very big deal that we've been advocating for. So yes, I do. I also am concerned about the lack of investment in reentry services. Right. So it's hugely important to educate folks and to offer them things while they're inside. But we can't, you know, the, we can't forget about them on the outside. Right. Uh, right. Otherwise, we failed miserably, and I think we are failing miserably in that space. I can say that with running prison to college pipeline. In many respects, the inside piece was almost the easy part. I mean, you have brilliant students. There's a lot of logistics and bureaucracy, but it's you. The joys are everywhere in terms of the classroom space and doing it. Um, but when folks come home and are coming back to the same communities that are the same, you know, issues of systemic racism, systemic inequality, lack of options, lack of services, trauma on a level that's not addressed. Right. And it's deeply disappointing. And I think it's also even in this moment in particular, 
one of the things that we're not talking about enough. We're pushing for decarceration. That's really important. I'm all for it, 100%. Let's get people out. And in fact, uh, at Incarceration Nations Network, we've got a whole defund the prisons campaign where we're demanding the number one in terms of immediate steps to take is release 25% of the prison population tomorrow, shorten 25% of all sentences. And we picked that number based on a Brennan Center study that was done showing that you can do this and do this safely and do it easily. So I'm all for it. Decarcerate. Um, I am an abolitionist. I'm working toward a world without prisons altogether. Um, But at the same time, if we're not providing services to people and support to people when they're coming home, we're setting them up to fail. And given the way that our our ridiculous parole system works it's really setting people up to just cycle in and out and cycle in and out I mean without getting into the intricacies of all the problems of parole we violate we we create impossible conditions that people that grown people shouldn't have to deal with like curfews oh for sure and then we and then they get stuck in Rikers and then then you see and then you see people at Rikers in there for not even new crimes um, and, and not for old crimes, but for violating curfew or, That's the, or driving. The overwhelming bulk of it. Right, right. And, you know, and I think the numbers, I think the data shows that the numbers uh, indicate that there will be more people at Rikers for parole violations and new crimes in the next 10 years. Without a doubt, unless well, we radically, unless we change, radically parole. change parole or we shut down Rikers. But, but the numbers indicate that, and that's horrifying. Yep. That's the first person to die of COVID on Rikers was in on a technical violation. Mm. So, I and I remind people of that all the time um, as evidence of the way that detention has become death and the reality of what we're doing when we just lock people up and lock people up and create impossible conditions. Um, it's a system that is designed to fail. See, this conversation is, is triggering for me because I represented someone, and I'm not going to say his name, obviously, for attorney confidentiality purposes, but I represented someone that was uh, um, that was remanded for violating parole because he was driving to his job where there was no public transportation and it was construction because if you have a felony, there's very few jobs that are that are employing you, unfortunately. So he was able to get a construction job to be able to provide for his two children. And the only way he can get there was by driving. And this parole officer, despite the fact that he hadn't done anything else wrong, he wasn't testing negative for, for dr- he wasn't testing positive for drugs. He was doing everything right. And he had the documentation to, to prove that he was working and that he was working at that location. And she would violate him because he would get stopped for driving a car at a certain time on his way to work. And, you know, that to me, it just doesn't make sense. Like if you're if you're not allowing someone to uh, maintain or create a livelihood for themselves, how is that how is that, you know, bettering their chances of, you know, reintegrating into society? It's designed to fail without a doubt. And, and some of like the social skills, like I've tried to talk to parole officers and it's there's a cynicism there. There's an attitude, a jaded attitude where it's not focused on solution, it's very defensive. And I'm obviously generalizing here, you know, and I'm sure that they go through a lot as well. You know, not not every person is innocent, you know, or, you know, not every person is, is doing the right thing. I understand that. But in my experience, it's, it's just an, a very unfortunate situation. I'm not sure what the requirements or the credentials are well, for someone to become a parole officer. 
I have mm-hmm. a lot to say about that. I mean, it's interesting because the same student, when we were, you know, talking the other night, we were talking specifically about this issue because I didn't even realize he was still on parole, which is outrageous. I mean, he's built an entire like fitness empire. He's a motivational speaker. He doesn't need to be on some curfews. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, right. you're it's absurd. But he was pointing out that you know what, I, w- I would like to have a parole officer if that person wasn't, you know, standing on my neck, but rather motivating me, right. providing access to opportunities. I mean, talk about radically rethinking our system. What if parole officers were all about, were like your your life coaches? Right. They were. What if they were directly impacted themselves and had experienced the system and knew how to navigate things and then were providing you with connections and job opportunities and networking you know, all kinds of networking mobility. What if they were motivating based not on, you can't do this, you can't do this, you know, standing there again with their foot on your neck and instead we're all about like, great job. You oh, did what good can here. we do? What else can we do? How can we serve you? I right. actually, among the many uh, things that I'm, I'm trying to build in this moment is a, a peacemaking academy at, at John Jay where I teach. And it would, which would basically train a whole different set of of justice officers wow. quote unquote so that means police that means parole officers and uh, and there's this this movement uh, the credible messenger movement that has been you know in existence for quite some time this idea that of course those who are, are best suited to do these jobs are the people who lived it with lived right. experience complemented by other kinds of experience right. and so what if parole officers were credible messengers and that would change everything. It would change the game. It would really provide reentry services uh, in a real way, as opposed to creating obstacles at every turn. We create obstacles at every turn. You talk about re-educating or, or uh, in, in improving the educational requirements for not only parole officers, but also for correction officers in your book, Incarceration Nations, right? So you're a two-time author, about to be three-time, mm-hmm. right? Um, even though you've published many articles, all right? Um, the first one that you did uh, was initially your PhD dissertation uh, from Columbia grad school titled Near Black, White to Black Passing in American Culture, right? Yep. And then the second one was uh, noted by Washington Post uh, as a uh, most notable, one of the most notable nonfiction books of 2016, Good job, boss. Thank you. Doctor Boss. You. <laughs> you know, that's the homie. So I know I gotta show her respect. She worked for that for that doctorate, you know, but I hope she you know oh. I hope she forgives me for not saying it. No. Um, Incarceration Nations. I read it, I've taught it to my students. An amazing book. Uh, I remember uh, sending you uh, thank you letters from my students once they read the book, all dying to meet you. And um, your journey started in Africa and ended in Europe. A book about visiting nine prisons around the world. So I want you to talk to me, to talk to us about that book and and how it was received because I tell you, as I taught it, and it was opening the minds of every person around me that read it um, and and how they saw, um, how they identified uh, the prison systems compared in other countries compared to ours and and how they found how ineffective they were especially um that if you would consider that if they were not state sponsored uh, most of these prisons were would be bankrupt uh, because they were so inefficient um talk to me about that book 
So, well, thank you for your kind words and your students' kind words. It, it never gets old, especially for people who've been in prison, who have read the book and liked it and felt that I represented the issue and the voices in a way that did those things justice. That's, you know, that's everything. Um, but basically, I, I wrote the book to do a bunch of different things at once. One of them was spotlight global prison issues, um, because as I was saying before, it just felt like, okay, we talk about the American problem, and of course we are the great incarcerator in the world and, right. and have 25% of the world's prison population with 5% of its population and all of these things, but the reality is it is a crisis everywhere in to varying degrees. And it's also a crisis that, and this is another thing that I really wanted to, to get into, is it's a crisis that's been foisted on the world by the U.S. I mean, what we have done in so many spheres is kind of throw our garbage <laughs> in other places. And our, our bereft systems and structures, we've foisted them on the world. Right. Um, and that is true of the prison system and, and prison as a response to crime. It first through colonialism and then through globalization, it's been this cut and paste system of justice that is ridiculous, right? It's both immoral and, and unethical and also illogical. Considering the wealth of cultures around the world, why would we think that there is one size fits all justice? And so I wanted to look at that process and kind of how it came to be. And I also wanted to just unpack philosophically the very idea of what we do when we incarcerate. I wanted to like turn the issue on its head and make it, you know, really alien to people in a way and say, why, why do we respond to harm with warehousing of human beings? How can we justify that? What are we doing when we do it? Uh, and then take on other aspects of it, like private prisons, like gender and, you know, women's incarceration globally right. and other kinds of things in order to push us to innovate and think about this issue with fresh eyes and ears and, and open hearts. Two questions. Um, do you mind if I smoke the cigar? Go right ahead. Okay, I'll, good, I'll, take, good. I'll take a sip of my Chardonnay. There we go. There we go. You deserve it. And I definitely deserve <laughs> the cigar. My second question is, how the hell were you able to get into these prisons? Also, as a woman, you know, I would imagine it was pretty difficult. You had to... There were, you had to do something. I was like, what was it? Like, your connects? Um, you know, was it, did you extort them? Like, what was it? <laughs> it was, there were ways and means, you know. I mean, Charlie, you know, I'm talking to a fellow native New Yorker. <laughs> we know ways and means. We know how to be persuasive as right. we need to be. But right. in all seriousness, it varied a lot. Um, and I think a part of what I did was utilize my privilege, in order to get access and ultimately in order to do something positive with it. And so I think a big part of it is people, folks just saw me as, you know, this little white girl academic. Right. Yeah, sure. You can come in and do your little study. Um, yeah. Why not, not? Not knowing, not knowing where you were up to, not, not knowing how much you were going to expose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. for real. And I think, the other piece is that it's not only it's it's not like I'm just coming in there to write this expose. I was coming in there for the to, truth, to, for the truth, and right. to build. I'm always thinking about not tearing down but building. Right. So I'm not just there to expose, you know, what's a hot mess. I'm right. there to say something's wrong here. Okay, how how do we collaborate to fix it? And to me, that's what ultimately INN 
has become about. It's right. not, I'm not just there to point fingers. Right. Um, right. But I think that certainly being, you know, an American and coming from a renowned institution of criminal justice and, you know, like non-threatening small white girl, like do those things work in, in, the fav- in my favor? Yeah, right. definitely. Right. But I, I can, I mean, I could tell lots of crazy stories about, I, I think about going to the Brazil, the supermaxes in Brazil, the chapter on solitary confinement. I'll just tell the story because I was remembering it the other day and it's so wild. Like that chapter came to be, I, I read about these supermaxes that were going up in Brazil modeled after American style solitary confinement supermaxes. And I read that they had this program called Redemption Through Reading, where they were letting people read books and mm-hmm. take some days off their, or weeks off their sentences. Right. And there was a lawyer. I love that. I love that so much. It's great. I mean, it was it was really a PR stunt. I'm not sure if it still exists, but okay. it wasn't doing any real change. I love the concept of it, but right. you know, it wasn't really doing uh, anything big. But there was a lawyer mentioned in conjunction with that who was based in Sao Paulo. These supermaxes were kind of in the boonies of Brazil. And I just randomly, he was mentioned in conjunction with a program. I wrote to him. I said, you know, I don't know you, but can you take me to prison? And he wrote back and said, yeah, okay, I can arrange this. And I said, great, I'll fly you, I'll, I'll meet you in Sao Paulo, we'll fly, we'll fly down to this prison, I'll pay for, you know, everything, the hotel, whatever, and we'll, we'll go in there and, and you can be my translator, he spoke English, right. and we'll spend a couple days and the beauty is that he said yes. He didn't know me, I didn't know him, and I remember showing up at the airport, and it's a random Brazilian man who I'd never met before, I knew nothing shook his hand, we got on the flight together and proceeded to spend, you know, the next bunch of days together and are now dear friends to right. this day. I mean, right. it was obviously a deeply bonding experience. But I think what that's testament to is that the folks who do this work, the folks who care, mm-hmm. especially in other parts of the world, again, where it's such an unpopular thing right. to even look at a prison, to let alone go inside one, there's something really beautiful there. And I, one of the greatest... Uh, joys and blessings of doing this work is that you are you naturally end up gravitating towards those beautiful souls because the folks who get why prisons are fucked up they they it's it's a they get why like we share a lot more than that in common they get why the world is wrong it's like a fundamental piece of understanding inequity understanding racism understanding you know the failings of capitalism so mm-hmm they generally tend to be some pretty amazing people. So all over the world, naturally gravitating to the people who cared about this issue opened up a world of, you know, beautiful, what I call comrades all over the world who were willing to go above and beyond as Andre was in Brazil. And it's, it's, it's been an incredible experience. Right. Okay, well, that's beautiful. And that's good to know that there's people, there's alliances out there in all of these countries. Um, you know, but the countries that you visited were... South Africa, Brazil, Uganda, Jamaica, Singapore, Norway. Shout out to the folks in Norway. We both have friends out there in Love Norway. Norway. Yes, and Trinidad. And we all love Trinidad, right? And um, Rwanda. And Rwanda. in Rwanda. And Rwanda. So tell me, you know, it, it appears that each country had, um, they were paired with a, a specific strategy on how to deal with their prison population. Um, which which country stood out to you the most as far as uh, something that we can implement in this country? Well, I, I chose those countries because I think they were kind of representative of an issue that I wanted to explore. Okay. 
Um, and some of them had, uh, even in unexpected places, there are, there are pockets of progress. And so some of them had, had that going on as well. Um, but I wanted to look at, say, women in incarceration. So I went to Thailand. Um, Southeast Asia is one of the highest prison populations for women. Women are the fastest rising prison population, globally speaking. Um, but Thailand, you know, the Southeast Asia in general kind of represents the whole impact of the war on drugs on women. So you're finding upwards of 80% of prison populations in, in Southeast Asia are in for you know, this ridiculous war on drugs. So I chose Thailand for that. I chose solitary confinement in Brazil because of the rise of these supermaxes and South Africa and Rwanda. I was talking about issues of truth and reconciliation, of apology, mm-hmm. of forgiveness, like the foundational philosophical issues that we talk about when we talk about punishment and justice and what what justice really means, you know. So... I think, um, you know, that that led to the selection of countries. But when it comes to things we can learn from, and I'm consistently seeing that. I mean, INN is all about that. It's about going around the world and, and looking at innovations happening. I think even, I think about Singapore, where you, you, certainly Singapore is not the first place you think of when you think wonderful justice system. You think about caning, you think about a very draconian system. But Singapore consistently inspires me in terms of its innovation and out out the box thinking. And the chapter on Singapore focused on reentry and they've taken reentry to a science. And they have a whole campaign there that advocates against it's a popular campaign advocating against discrimination towards formerly incarcerated people and and pushing for employment of them. They have job banks. They do an incredible job of finding jobs for um, for people coming out of prison. This is invested by the government. or This is uh, privately invested. This is government. Right. Yeah. Um, And that's an incredible thing to see. Was it in Singapore uh, an arts program? Uh, where where people where where the prisoners were uh, get into like performances, that was actually no that was in Thailand. Although oh, I've seen Thailand, that okay. yeah I've seen that in a lot of different countries. The use of artistry of, of theater right. um, of all the different kinds of arts. And in Uganda, I talked about a creative writing program that I started for a while there and and worked on in that context. In Jamaica, I was in a music program. It was a reggae program. Mm. And so you see, you know, some of these are what I call Band-Aids, and I say that not to deride them because Band-Aids are, we all need Band-Aids sometimes, right. like yeah. otherwise there's going to be blood everywhere. But um, And some of them are much more systemic, like the some of the Singaporean aspects of reentry. And then looking at, uh, you know, even this Redemption Through Reading program in Brazil, a little Band-Aid, but something, and something that can help us think about um, about what another system could look like. And the book ends in Norway because of the fact that Norway is touted as this kind of criminal justice utopia. And there is a lot to write home about when it comes to Norway. And not just in terms of its justice system, but in terms of its approach to the world. Right. Um, before we get to Norway, I just wanted to talk to you because in New York Times, you spoke about, you mentioned that American reformers could learn the value of forgiveness from Rwandan prisoners living in the shadow of genocidal atrocities, right? And then you went on to speak about reconciliation and why we as a country uh, should should um, take heed. Why do you think we're not there, this country? And I know we have a you know, history of slavery and, and how that's affected the way we, we perceive 
uh, punishment and, and, you know, we have that otherism. A lot of countries don't have, you know, they have, uh, you know, homogeneous populations. Obviously, race is, is, is a big issue in this country. But why do you think we're not taking this reconciliation approach the way we should? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that, although just two caveats to what you said. I mean, number one caveat is that Rwanda is no also no utopia, right. and the process of post-genocide reconciliation was hardly perfect. It's still being played out today, and there are lots of things happening beneath the curtain. So I think anything that we know, and Rwanda is a very, very complex place to know. Right. I don't even claim to know it. I spent two, I had two stints of time there. Gotcha. I love it very much. I feel I've learned a ton from it, but um, there's a lot that happens beneath the surface there, and even for you know Rwandans. Right, so right. Uh, it's, but there is nonetheless something very very powerful there. And the other thing, the other caveat I think is that while of course we are you know we're talking about slavery in this country having been the foundation of our criminal legal system and of our justice system, we should recognize that race and and as it, it plays out everywhere in the world when it comes to incarceration. And so it's race or class. And whether it's Brazil and their legacy of slavery and racism and how it's being played out in there as the largest incarcerator in the Americas, or certain ethnic tribes in Thailand, uh, ethnic groups in Thailand who are over-incarcerated, or poor people in throughout the global south and in post-colonial nations. Like, right. there's an other everywhere. Maori people in New Zealand, Aboriginal people in Australia, et cetera, et cetera. So we are, it's, you know, we like to think that it's just us who have the race problem, but right. Right. it's not the case. It's a global okay. problem. Um, but I think as to this, the issue of why are we so vengeful, and why are we so obsessed with punishment in this country? I think there's a lot of answers to that. But the main one to me is that the myth of the American dream is what's behind that. Right. Because the myth of the American dream is that we have individual agency. And we can pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and come in as immigrants and you know build wonderful businesses. And capitalism is the answer. And number one, that's a lie. Many people, especially people of color... Black and brown folks in this country didn't have bootstraps in the first place to be picking themselves up with. So it's with, we've got to talk about systems and structures. We're obsessed with the illusion of individual agency in this country. And what that means is it plays out as in a very punitive way. Because if you imagine that it's all about your choices and right. you can choose to fix everything and build a great business and make a perfect life and it's all on you, then it means when you don't do that, it's all on you to be punished and flogged and shamed for the rest of your life. And so until we start undoing that and talk about the systems and structures that are shaping people's decisions, right. then we are not going to get anywhere. And Americans do not know how to talk about systems and structures. I think, you know what, in this moment, we're moving towards that a lot more. Yeah, and I've seen the conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's why I was saying talking about abolition now mm -hmm. and talking about systemic racism and what it means to be an anti-racist and all the reading lists. And we're, we're getting there. But... I feel like prior to this, when you try to talk about systems and structures, people's eyes just cloud right. up. They want to talk about individual acts of racism. Exactly. They exactly. want to talk about the Amy Coopers, um, which are, and I'm not saying that isn't a relevant conversation, but 
it's it's far more important to put that in the context of the systems and structures. Like the Amy Cooper scenario, let's talk about the system and structure that built the Upper West Side right. over and above this particular woman. Right. So I think that that's the, the thing that fuels our punitiveness. There's also a lot of uh, legacy of, of our Puritan ancestry in this country, um, our extremist nature as a country. Again, so it's like, we don't just want to lock people up. We want to lock them up and have the longest sentences in the world. And we want to have the death penalty and life without parole. Um, But... But so much of that is about this this illusion of individual choice and a refusal to look at um, alternatives. Right, right. I've been reading a lot about meritocracy and um, and the illusion of meritocracy and and how this idea of meritocracy has kept us divided in this nation, Um, you know, to your point, and how it contributes to certain policies, most of the time supported by the people who, who don't benefit from such policies that actually... Are, um, are hurt from such policies. And since the 1950s, there, the gap has only increased. Mm-hmm. Income inequality is, is out of control. And especially when you compare us to other rich, uh, you know, democratic nations. So it, it, I think it's a testament to this illusion of meritocracy and how we all think, you know. Um, but, but also, you, you spoke about Norway um, in the way where... Um, the correction officers, um, in, in the last chapter, uh, you mentioned that they talked fluently about Foucault. Foucault. Foucault, there we go. Get your French on. Foucault, <laughs> which, is, which is a philosophy based on the assumption that human knowledge and existence are profoundly historical, right? So imagine if our system thought more like that. Yeah. That the reason why certain populations are where they are you know, you don't have to go that far just to look at history. Just look at history and, and that, you know, you, you would get the answers based on a system, a historical system that has been pervasive when it comes to racism and unequal opportunity. Um, I also found it interesting that you signal towards the world needing a healthy dose of Norwegian. This is another word that I may need help for. John Telovin? Yeah. I, I said it okay? That, I think that's it. John, okay, so what is, sure John what is John Telovin? What is John Telovin? Um, it's actually this idea that you are not exceptional. Mm. And I love that. I say that all the time. I know. I, I love it too. And I, it, in that, I love that. I actually really love that piece of the book. <laughs> if I can like my own, my own book it's for okay. a minute, but, um, because I, I still remember that conversation and it was a conversation I had with a Norwegian woman, um, who was talking about how much she liked this particular like area of town that was kind of fly, right. you know, and, and doing something pretty cool and different for right. Norway. Norway is not a flashy place. Like, it's extremely uncouth to be flashy if you have money there. I mean, it's a very equal place as well, so there's not, there people are not running around with mass amounts of money. And right. But if they are, they're not showing it off. There's a humbleness to it, and it's... Um, it's very beautiful to witness, but she was saying, "Oh my gosh, this 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 particular part of town, this hotel, like it's flouting that, and it is um, being fabulous, basically." Right. And uh, and she liked that. And we were talking about this idea of Yantelovin, and for me, 
I thought, God, that's beautiful. This idea that you are not exceptional, that in fact it's rude to like walk around thinking you're so fabulous all the time. Right. Um, because if you, you know, exceptionalism is so much of the problem. And if we recognize that we are all kind of in this together and no one is uber fabulous um, or more fabulous than another and that you are part of a larger system and structure and, and right. we're in this together as a community that you're going to have a more just world as a result of that. Right, right. You know, and I think that begs us to to look in the mirror and actually question our privileges. You know, but people don't want to do that because people want to believe that, there are, that they are where they are because of their own efforts. Right. Not because of how educated your parents are, not because of the school system that you attended, Right. Not because, you know, you didn't have a troubled childhood. You were allowed to go to school and just focus on school and not where where your next meal is coming from. You know, not not that you're wasted in the way, not because you were a woman. And, you know, every single time you go into a space, your idea is being hijacked. You know, there's so many different privileges, you know, as a man, as a man with, you know, you know, even though I'm a person of color, I, I've I've experienced tremendous privilege as a result of being a man. So I think it just takes a lot of self-reflection. Um, and, you know, even when you look into the data, and I'm, I know I'm going all over the place, but when you look at students that go to Ivy League schools, you know, there's, I believe it was like anywhere between 40 to 60% of the students come from the top 5% of, of families and top income uh, earning uh, families in the country. You know, like how is that fair, and 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 where is the merit in that? You know, um, yeah. students that attend these schools because their parents are alumni. You know, George Bush, J- Jr. being one of them. You know, um, like you know, this, like, let's not is, talk about that. We we don't want to talk about that though. This is the culture of inequality that we've produced, and I think that's the other thing. I think about the landscape of Norway, which I describe in the book. That there's a kind of sameness to it right. and a quietness and a humbleness to it. It's very, very beautiful, of course, but the radical inequality produces often fabulousness. And I'm not just thinking about the U.S., I'm thinking about South Africa, as we were talking about right. earlier, you know, um, a level of uh, lavishness and over-the-top spectacle, and that can be very beautiful. So, right. But I think what I most saw in Norway that moved me was that Radical equality, or as close as we can get to it, can be far more beautiful, even if it's not over the top, even if it's not, you know, big fancy houses and um, incredible, gorgeous, fancy restaurants, that there is um, there is an incredible beauty that can come out of equity. And that's the world that that I want to live in. So but the thing is that why, you know, why can't we move towards that? Like there's so many policies that Norway has when it comes to healthcare, education and housing that if a politician, uh, Bernie Sanders, if you will, would, would try to promote it, he'll be labeled as he a did. communist, he did, yeah. as a socialist. But but, you know, because you know, we are founded on capitalism, countries. Charlie, that is it. Like we the the root of this nation is racial capitalism. And in order to undo the the many issues that we've touched upon in this conversation, we have to like start from square one because under capitalism, there can never really be justice. Right. Uh, and until we start thinking about, 
I mean, I hate the word the greater good because it's so simplistic, you know, but until we start thinking about the fact that we are part of a larger whole right. and we think in that way truly and we have policy that enacts as such, we're not going to get anywhere. And the, I, the fundamental idea of capitalism is this illusion of meritocracy and hard work paying off right. and the notion that the only thing that people can be motivated by is money making as opposed to the power of being motivated by the greater good. That's, a, that's something I, I felt I really learned from Rwanda, um, not only from Norway, is, and again, with the caveat that things are very complex there, but there definitely is a sense of people being motivated by making Rwanda great, truly. Mm. And right. making Rwanda great does not mean, you know, making it just have tons and tons of money. It means right. creating a society where folks are taken care of. And I think like on every, they have certain days that are designated community service days where you see people walking around just picking up trash on the street because it's creating a better Rwanda. And I think we have sold humanity short when we push this notion that the only thing that can motivate us is market competition. Right. Right. That is not, we are motivated by by a search for meaning. I think about Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. We're, oh, we're, we're motivated. I love that book. That, it's book, an amazing that book messed book. me up, man. It really it changed my all life. all of us up. I was watching an interview with Buju Banton the other day, and he referenced right. it, and I was like, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. You know, that, yes. Is, that is an incredibly important thing to recognize that we're motivated by the search for meaning and right. purpose in life and, purpose and, how, in life, right? how, and the joy that that brings us. We are motivated by, um, you know, taking care of others and seeing ourselves as part of a larger whole. We're seeing that now in the pandemic with mutual aid groups that are springing up and the joy that people are getting in making sure that their neighbors are cared for, you know, as in a, in a way that is equal to the way that they are. Uh, so we got to stop selling humanity short. Right, right. You know, and you know, in capitalism, everyone has to work for their self-interest, and then you, then you're surprised when. Uh, you know, folks are not wearing masks, working for the mm -hmm. common good. They, they just can't understand what the common good is. Well, you know, I, I've gotten really, really <laughs> animated about that because even just today, somebody said, I just don't understand why people can't, people in this country can't look out for others. And I'm like, because it's, it's America. It's America. Right. What do you, and, and the notion of, sell, I actually think we should have not been selling it on, if not for you, then for your neighbor from the get go. Because it's like, you can't do an about yeah. face and suddenly turn away from your inherently selfish capitalist Right. root right. you know that's who we are as a country so now you want people to put on masks and think about others but you know it, it you know and i'm not trying to go there with you as far as you know the politics the <laughs> you know but it, it it baffles me that you know we have the folks uh you know wanting to make america great again and they kept and they keep on reflecting on a time where capitalism wasn't so hyper you know it, it, it you know they they they're talking huh. about a time we're not so hyper. We're still hyper, but not as hyper as we, you know, obviously over the years in the 70s, we've allowed uh, corporations Slavery to, was pretty hyper. Yeah. Slavery <laughs> was really hyper. As far as the government um, taxing the rich, that changed dramatically since the 1950s, right? So when we want to go, when we want to talk about economic mobility, in the 1950s, the middle class was doing really well and the poor class was, was, was moving along. Right. But the the rich were, were taxed at 40 to 50, maybe 60 percent, you know, but we've stayed, you know, we've gone a long way from that. And um, and some of it had to do with, 
you know, corporations being able to hire uh, private private lobbyists. You know, obviously the the, the two party system. Uh, you know, doesn't work. You know, they're both motivated and influenced by these lobbyists. Um, so we want to go back to that era. But in that era, the government was more focused on the general welfare. So, it, you know, it's just conf- very confusing to me. And yes, even in that time, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, you know, things were separable, definitely not equal. You know, hyper-capitalism was still existing. But, you know, it, you know for us to talk about Everyone having an opportunity, everyone uh, being able to create a life for themselves and, 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 and be afforded, uh, you know, an equal education, um, be, you know, be able to, to just provide for their families. Our policies are not favoring that sentiment. And what America, you know, I'm going on a tangent, but what, what's so great about this America that you propose if there's so many contradictions um, and, and, you know, capitalism just confuses many in this country. Mm-hmm. And unless we're able to sit down and reconcile with the root of capitalism, and when I say reconcile, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to, you know, reconciling. I don't think you can ever reconcile um, um, slavery, but... We have to go back and, and, and actually talk about that. Issue public statements and, and do reparations. You know, you you have to make an attempt to remedy that. Because Absolutely. if we don't, then what are we doing? Correct. But I think it, it's a level of reckoning that, I mean, we are. it's long overdue. And hopefully that's what we're moving towards. And it's reckoning with the, the genocide and racism at our core. But it's also reckoning with... The whole idea of of capitalism as being, as far as I'm concerned, a ridiculously outdated, outmoded approach to 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 life. Right. We've seen other countries. We've seen other countries make strong attempts to reconcile. We've seen Germany uh, try to reconcile for the Holocaust, right, um, giving reparations uh, to the state of Israel. We've seen in, in Chile after the brutal dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know there came um, some form of reparation. What has taken us so long? Obviously, the answer is capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. But can there be another answer, like other than capitalism? White supremacy. White supremacy. Right? <laughs> I mean, white supremacy deeply rooted in this country, uh, and a real hesitancy to address the genocide at our core. And that is not only slavery, but you know, decimation in terms of Native Americans and everything that we were founded on. I read this article that you wrote and you brought up a really good point about maybe, no, not maybe, that we should go back and rewrite our Constitution. Absolutely. And, and you uh, quoted, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson, in which he said to James Madison, who was the author of the Constitution, Correct. Um, I, I believe the, James was Madison was the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, he was okay. one of the major writers. One of the but, major writers. Know, allegedly, it was a, a team effort. Right, of right. White, of white men, slave owning white men. Right, exactly. Yes, mm-hmm. and that and, and that uh, Thomas Jefferson said that no society can make a perpetual constitution. That the earth belongs always to the living generation and not the dead, especially not white dead slave owners. Right. Um, but that every constitution and that every law naturally expires 
at the end of 19 years. This is, these are like founders of this country. They're saying, like, if they were to come back in a, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a time travel, they'll look at us and be like, you idiots, you guys haven't done shit. Evolve, evolve. You haven't done nothing, anything to change what we wrote? I mean, well, we did, we amended and we amended and we amended. And to me, it starts to become a joke. Because at what point do you say, you know what, like, if, if I got a, a, a leak in my house, I'm going to plug it and plug it and plug it. Right. At a certain point, you got to rebuild your house. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's where I think we've been at with the Constitution um, for a long, long time. We don't need an amendment to the, thir- you know, we don't need to change the 13th Amendment, which legalizes mass incarceration and uh, slavery as mass incarceration. You were in that documentary, by the way, right? I saw you a few times. It was, it was an honor. It was Spitting an honor. some jewels. Greatest, greatest, one of the greatest honors of my life being interviewed by the goddess Ava, yes. the brilliant, um, you know, gift to this earth. So, right. yeah. She's doing amazing work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the to me, the moral of the story is that and, and I'm not by any means the only person saying this. The most prog- progressive constitutions in the world are recent ones. So South Africa's constitution, ger- thinking about Germany um, after the Holocaust and other nations that wrote new constitutions. I just don't see the Constitution as being this holy document. Right. Um, it's not relevant to where we're at anymore. It's a roadmap. Yeah. It's a, and I think you mentioned it. it's a roadmap. It's not like a destined journey. Mm-hmm. And why haven't we understood that as such? You know, like. And the process of writing the Constitution is also something in and of itself. And I think that that's why I tie them together, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, with the new Constitution, because you know, the the process of reconciling means that we have to fundamentally think about our values. And and I'm going to say something out there, which is that... Make it happen. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> which is that, you know what? It might mean that we can't be one nation. And maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing because I do think that at a certain point you have to look at your country and say, all right, red and blue states or however we want to define this split. Right. Uh, do we share the fundamental values anymore. You know, it's kind of like at the beginning of a conversation, I'm not going to get into a debate with somebody unless we share basic premises of truth. Right. You know, um, if you're telling me I'm not going to argue about uh, nature if the sky is green to you, like that's not a point of debate. And so arguing about certain people being human, certain ideas about borders and certain... I mean, those are really basic. And so I think we need to reckon also with the fact that it may not be reconcilable. And that's so important. I take that from a justice standpoint, too. It's not everything can be reconciled. There are wrongs and there are differences that are going to stand. And two people can figure out how to kind of coexist, but... That doesn't mean reconciliation, and that doesn't mean that they want to be in in it together. Right. So I think we really have to like take a cold, hard look That's at the reality never... of, of who, who we are as a nation and whether it's doable anymore for real. Right. And I think that for people who say, oh, but, you know, that would, you know, disrupt the nation in ways that are not doable, agreed, but so did abolition of slavery. Right. Which is what so many people, you know, I always say people are like, but ending mass incarceration, how can we do that in all these industries? Well, you know what? Slavery was pretty inconvenient to dismantle, too, and, and pretty challenging. And there were loads of people then saying we can't have an economy without slavery. And so 
we're even seeing now in this nation, again, you know, being out there with this concept. And, and again, this is not something that excites me, like, let's do it. It's right. just we have to face the realities of these situations. We're seeing great migrations happen right now, the same way we saw after Katrina, you know, what happened with folks there being moved all over the country right. and um, reestablishing communities sometimes for better, often for worse, you know. Again, thinking about the cocktail of capitalism, evil capitalism that rules this nation. But we're, we got to recognize that in the face of the pandemic, we're seeing massive geographical shifts anyway. So it's it can happen. We saw it in history, the Great Migration, right, after um, post-slavery and, and what happened in the 19, early 19th century, radical shifts in populations. So we shouldn't be attached to anything as permanent period, I mm. think, as progressive thinkers and as, as, as radically imaginative thinkers, right. but especially in this moment, we can't be attached to, that's just the way it is. Right. Well, th- so that's a lot to process, right? That's the first time I probably thought about how this nation would be pre-Civil War, um, but, but you know, actually understanding or reimagining this nation being in that way, um, you know, raises some questions, and um, yeah, listen, I'm I'm okay with uh, not being a part of uh, anything having to do with Florida. You know, <laughs> so let's not get it twisted. But except, um, except for the beach, except for the beach, and even that, you know, we can find another beach. We can find <laughs> another beach. But um, you know, on a philosophical end, I've I've always thought, um, not always, but you know, recently I thought about. Um, this social agreement among the citizen, the citizenry, right? And it makes me think about philosopher John Rawls. And, um, and I've studied this concept of the veil of ignorance by John Rawls uh, in making the case for equality. And he posits that um, in rewriting, rewriting an agreement or coming to the table to write this agreement, uh, that we come as rational, self-interested persons. Um, but imagine if we were to come to this table and recreating this new constitution without knowing our class, our gender, our race or ethnicity, our political opinions or our religious convictions, you know, our advantages or disadvantages, whether we were healthy or frail, uh, whether we came from a family that uh, was highly educated uh, or we came from a, a family that, you know, were high school dropouts. Like, how would we create this constitution? You know, in this ignorance, uh, we can maybe create a better nation. Um, and, and it makes me question, what principles would we write? Would we choose if, uh, you know, we were to work from this ignorance? And, and that's why when I think of The Veil of Ignorance by John Rawls, I think that that's a perfect way to reimagine and recreate the Constitution. That's beautiful. And I think that's where I say that the folks who are, uh, you know, refusing to put a mask on to walk into a store as if it's some great, you know, endeavor, I, I don't know <laughs> that we would have the same, we would have this, anything close to the same premises and right. the same values and exactly what you're describing. Right, right. So, yeah. And, and, you know, so we talk about this utopian society that we like to build, right? Um, and possibly away from the South, just the North, right? But, <laughs> but we talk about this, and, and what is this utopian society that we would like to build? Uh, you know, 
defunding the police, reimagining the way we we uh, we have law enforcement in the community. Um, right now, we're starting to see folks screaming about this, uh, saying uh, that it's politically inconvenient because of the election season. Um, and other folks are saying this is not progressive enough. But but with the spike in crime um, in New York City and all in, in major cities throughout the nation, uh, which is which is layered, right? Which uh, you know could be because of COVID, people losing their jobs, uh, people not having the resources, you know, the stress, um, being cooped up in their apartments, being in you know uh, you know violent situations, having being forced to you know, being very hostile environments, um, you know, it's layered. But yet, I feel like, you know, the powers that be are using it to, to you know, create this narrative that defunding the police would be a terrible thing. Um, and it's not reasonable. Like, what do you say to that? Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous. And I do think that the narrative uh, is being hijacked and manipulated in, in, in a reactionary way. Look, I, I have, we both grew up in New York when crime was heavy, um, mm-hmm. when violent crime was heavy. I've spent a lot of time in places and in, in the context of justice work in, where crime is very heavy in first and foremost, South Africa. Right. Um, and where not only crime is heavy, but where there is a justified sense of anger and fear. And I would never dare to say it's it's not justified, and we should never not be outraged at harm that's caused to people and communities that are that are being impacted. And when I see a one year old kid being, you know, there's a funeral for a one year old baby being shot in Bedsty, that that has to pain us. Right. Uh, that that has to pain our our hearts and our yeah. sense of justice. Uh, but I think. We, we can't be deterred from still being smart in these situations and thinking about how do we respond to this not from a place of anger and fear. Right. Fear is not a place to make decisions from. You know, I mean, in my time in therapy, I remember my therapist saying a lot, never make decisions from a fearful place. Right. And that's true on a local level and on a national level. We can't make decisions from a fearful place. We have to consistently be thinking about what's a what's a just response right, to this. Right, and you know, that's the thing that uh, I, I find that, I don't want to generalize, but, you know, many many of us are compartmentalizing um, what justice means to us. Like, you know, we're about prison reform, but then, and uh, you know, a crime happens or, you know, something happens. For example, I think we spoke about it briefly mm-hmm. today um, with the Junior case in the Bronx when, you know, it was a it was a tragedy. It was it, it was horrific. What was shown on video where this young boy was 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 stabbed to death by um, by other teenagers that were considered gang members. Um, but but the same people that were yelling out prison reform we're yelling out for the death Lock penalty. Them Lock, Lock them, them up. up. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, how can we start to reconcile the two and say, you know what? Maybe, and, you know, and I, and I actually spoke to, um, you know, uh, JP Infante on the last episode about this. And, you know, and I said, like, you know, you have to look into yourself. Like, if something was to happen to someone that I care about and loved, would my, would my stance change? And if I want to live with integrity, I have to tell myself, look, it's, I'm human. It's, it would be really difficult for me not to feel anger and not to work out of a, a place of anger. But on a societal level, I have to, you know, I have to 
think about it on a societal level and and I have to be consistent. And if that takes me going to the mountain and figuring shit out and, and forgiving um, radical forgiveness or, or or finding ways to like understand what happened from a holistic you know point, you know, like why did we not question at all? Who were these teenagers? Were they coursed by someone else? What was their history? You know, what what environment did they grow up in? Recognizing that most, quote, offenders and victims are the same people. That, right. that Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key is um, we, need, we need to also stop. I write about this in my chapters on Rwanda and South Africa. And over the years, I've, you know, had so many conversations with people who've been impacted by crime, you know, who are survivors of violent crime. And there are studies done, but... All of which is to say that the assumption that punishment is going to give us the healing that we deserve and the repair that we deserve as a you know as 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 someone who's been impacted by by harm right. is an illusion and it's not punishment that's and there are lots of you know official studies showing this but I think just it's time to engage with the people being impacted and give them other options. It's that's the only option that's being presented. And there's uh, Danielle Sered, who heads Common Justice and a, a great organization here in New York that is a restorative justice organization taking on uh, cases that involve violent crime, not only, you know, quote, more uh, minor offenses, who wrote a, a great book called Until We Reckon. She talks about this in that book and in interviews around it, which I would highly recommend. But we give people one option. And that's it. And that is the criminal legal system and punishment and harm. Uh, and in fact, what they have seen to be true is that when you give people uh, another option, they are far more satisfied by it. And studies both in the U.S. and in uh, other countries, including New Zealand, have shown that overall people are more repaired by a restorative approach than a punitive one. Right. In my book, I write about um, one of one of our students who's still incarcerated, is not going on 28 years in, of incarceration, seven times at the board. I mean, and this is a person who's been locked up since he was 17, right. who is, I could say, a million superlative things about this person. He built the prison to college pipeline alongside me. Uh, anything that I know about justice, I feel like I learned in part through him. And not only do I know that he would come out of prison and, of course, not commit other crimes, uh, but he would be making the world a better place with every breathing second of his life, and yet he's still locked up. And in one of his board appearances, he was told, the victim wants more time from you. And hearing that phrase, which also reminded me of like some Shakespearean Shylock saying more a pound of flesh, like we're really taking pounds of flesh from people. I thought to myself, you know, I really feel pain for the for the victim here because right. after 24 years or they 25 still haven't years, found a way to heal. still haven't found the right. healing. Right. At what point do we say, you know what, maybe this punishment thing is not what it's cracked up to be, and we, we, we should sell you on something else. I've also had a recent experience where a friend of mine in another country who was um, American but staying for a while in, in another country was the victim of a, in a pretty small country that's not 
racked with crime, um, but has has crime present, was a victim of a, a armed robbery, a break-in that also involved some other kinds of assault, you know, a serious situation that was deeply psychologically impactful. And she actually came to me and said, you know what, I don't think I want to you know, throw these more young men, there were young men who did this through the, the criminal justice system to then lose their lives and repeat this cycle of harm. Do I really want to participate in that? What other options are available to me? And the sad part is that after doing research and talking to a lot of people and connections that I had there, I couldn't find anything. There were no other options available to her. So it had to go that route. And right. she had already signed certain statements, you know. So it's like we not, we're not developing anything as other than this. Right. And it's time to do that and right. put our resources and our energy and our innovation and our progressive thinking into really making um, options available for true healing uh, right. and true restoration and stop the cycle of harm. Right, right. You know, I agree. I agree. And, you know, because it's, it's really about putting the victim in the center of, 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 of the justice system, at the heart of the justice system, but also providing resources for, the, for that victim to heal. Um, and because if that victim heals and we start, we start to think about other ways, um, other ways of exploring the root cause of whatever occurred, uh, we start to think about okay, like how can we stop it as a part, as opposed to like uh, just you know punitive measures, just putting them away, not knowing that you may be doing that person a disservice. Mo- many people age out of crime at the you know at at mid twenties, I believe I read. Um, there's so much he could have changed his life. He could have gone to the community and, and talked about his experiences. You know, who knows what other talents this person may have had um, that could have benefited society and benefited the community, but yet we're not taking those approaches. It's, it's troubling for, for me to know that when it comes to criminal justice, the, the field of criminal justice is different from many other fields. Like, you know, if a bridge was to collapse right now, the government would go out and hire an expert who knows about bridges, knows how to repair bridges. Uh, but if, if something happens where there's a crime involved and there's a victim, uh, we don't go to the experts. Politicians, uh, you know, make decisions based on what they think the public wants, which is with the, the public wants something that is probably told to them in the news that came to them in a very sensationalized way. And it's like, we're not making the right decisions. We're, we're not making not, the smart decisions. And we're also not cultivating experts in the right way, right? right. An expert means like a criminologist or um, a lawyer or somebody or a judge. Um, I, don't, I don't know that that's an expert, you know. I think we need to be creating more holistic experts that think about the needs of... Oof. Um, I've always said, and you know what, and maybe this is not progressive enough. I've always said that judges have to be both defense attorneys and prosecutors. That's a start. That's a start. I would take it further. I would say that, you know, we need to be like training a whole other set of justice worker in all capacities. Uh, And that is a person who understands psychology and understands law and understands social work and, um, and understands philosophy and really much more profound things than just like the intricacies of the law. Right. And, and I'm also not ashamed to say that I'm very critical of law. I don't talk about law. I talk about morality and sometimes those two things coincide, but 
most of them, most of the time, they don't. Right, right. You know, and, you know, understanding the law, knowing the law, studying the law takes years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, understanding the morality of the law probably takes even more than a law school education, right? Because you have to know yourself and you have to know uh, what your morals are and, and how you're going to use the law. Um, what I find disturbing is that it, it takes an attorney three years, possibly four years, taking the bar, you know, to, to become an attorney, to, to be able to understand the law. But yet it takes several months for a police officer to enforce the law um, and carry around a gun and a badge, right? Same and, for and, a corrections officer. And same right? for correction officers, right? So, you know, I agree with you. And, you know, and, and I, I guess we can learn something from, from Norway as far as um, the educational system and, 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 how it relates, <laughs> and, and how it relates to correction officers. Um, so because folks are, you know, humans, should I say, we, we focus, we tend to focus more on what's happening now um, in front of us, not what we can't see, but more, um, especially in New York City. You know, a lot of people are disgruntled for many reasons. Um, you know, we, we briefly uh, mentioned before that uh, there's been a spike in crime. Is there space for people to understand the nuance of wanting to reimagine a system and take steps to recreate this system while um, attending to these like urgent matters um, where, you know, there's gang violence? You know, what do we do with the pending gang violence? You know, we don't have any peacekeeping uh, programs, um, or maybe we do. Well, can we, can we, can maybe we pause we there? Sure. we do have those. Okay, okay. Um, and are they ready to go, you know, on the ground and, um, and, and actually get to work? So look, for and, again... Or cap- do they need money? And we have to decide right. how to fund them. Right. So again, caveat. I'm not sitting here right. with all the answers. Right, like, right, I got right. the prescription for this. No, it's... This is highly complex work, and right. um, and again, in addition, like uh, having not been uh, a gang member myself, um, my understanding is limited by that reality, right? right? Re- respecting um, the the knowledge realm of those directly impacted, but I can say that um, I've spent a lot of time talking to folks who either were part of uh, the Latin Kings in Ecuador, uh, other gangs, gangs in South Africa folks who've really looked at um, strategies for reducing violence in those contexts. And there are approaches that reveal loud and clear that the the hard fist approach, the lockdown approach, the anti-gang, shut down the gangs approach, it does not work. Right. So, I mean, when I think about what Ecuador did by essentially legalizing the Latin Kings, and institutionalizing them as part of the government. That's seen as one model that was enormously successful. Nothing's perfect, um, but but it went quite a long way. And there's a lot of interest. I have been to El Salvador and have colleagues there and have a lot of love for that amazing country. Uh, And I have colleagues there who are, are pushing to try to replicate the Ecuadorian approach in El Salvador. It's a it's a really relevant one. The other approach is, as we were talking about earlier, peacekeeping, credible messengers, uh, different kinds of cure violence initiatives. They exist. Mm. We have them right here in New York City. 
Uh, they exist in Chicago, another place that's that's being ravaged right now. Um, by not right now, I mean it has been, but right. we're seeing a spike in cases in terms of gun violence. Uh, we need to invest in them. Right, they're not we being supported. To, they're not being supported, and they're also, in some ways, I mean, I, I was talking to a colleague about this who made this point. They're they're being exploited. Folks are not the these. Uh, credible messengers who are in the community and there's lots of different ways that they work i mean there's those who are responders there are those who are part of the um you know can be part of the police the fabric of what policing looks like um there are those who can be as we were talking about taking over kind of parole systems there's lots of different facets to this kind of work not all of them are running to crime scenes necessarily Um, but we need to think about how that can be institutionalized, supported, and the folks doing this work are not going to be exploited by just, it's expected that you, that because you're directly impacted and you have this this knowledge and experience that you're just going to work for free or for right. low pay or right. whatever it is. So it's my hope that we are going to institutionalize these kinds of programs and uh, this kind of work much more in this moment. And that's what I would like to see happening in the face of the defund the police right. movement is an, a reinvestment in that. Um, but we also don't, and that's why I was talking about this, uh, the idea of, of training our future peacemakers. We don't really have entities that engage in this sort of training. Uh, we have police academies and right. we have, you can become a corrections officer through that that quick training as well. But we also need to radically rethink how we educate people going into the communities and doing this work, and especially credible messengers and having a, a nationwide credible messenger academy that is is really funneling people in a strong, supported way into communities to create peace. We don't do enough with mediation and, and peacemaking altogether. I mean, one of our partners is in a very different context. It's in Bangladesh, in rural Bangladesh, these mediators who stop, you know, tensions before they escalate to the point of having to reach the criminal justice system. We need community justice centers uh, all over that are about how do we come in and mediate these disputes happening? How are folks embedded in communities diffusing situations before they reach this point? It's not going to be flawless. We're never going to have the perfect crime-free society i mean it's it's not going to happen right uh, but it can move us in that direction right right one of my favorite quotes comes from uh, uh doctor the late dr wayne dyer um where he said whatever you think about expands and i feel the same way for investment whatever you invest in you expand if you invest in prisons you're going to get more bodies to go to that prison because the only way the prison could remain open would be by feeding it bodies. Mm-hmm. But if you invest in education, you're going to see a lot more opportunities, uh, you know, um, come out of that investment. And the same thing goes for community justice programs, peacekeeping initiatives. I think that really helps. Representation, being able to communicate and socialize. Many of these law enforcement, uh, you know, this is not to, to go against, I, I know there's a lot of, you know, police officers out there that are, are, are good people. And, and, and they're really trying to, to better the community, and they've invested in, um, they've invested in tools 
to be able to socialize well with with people from the community. But that's not a that's not the the the, the large no. representative. No, that's not the large representative. So and it's know, also again the system and the structure. It's not about like being the individual good officer. Right. Very nice. But right. Exactly. We're, we're rethinking systems and structures. Here. Right. 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 Exactly. So, um, you know, when it comes to representation and and someone from the community of the community um, that understands the culture um, that is able to uh, identify what the problems are in the community because they're from the community um, I, I think you know I agree with you I think that is the way to go I think um, that is how you can prevent uh, crimes by going forward um, you know I, you know I would like to see it I would like to see it. Um, and we have to start investing and we have to start reimagining it. So in imagining a utopian society, we also, uh, uh, Incarceration Network, Nation Network, um, talks about defunding the prison system, uh, reducing reliance on the prisons. And, and the Incarceration Nation Network uh, highlights several ways of doing this, right? But, like, would you like to explain what these ways are? Yeah, so we we identified, we're trying to be both immediate, you know, band-aid-y and long-term systemic abolitionist at the same time. And and I think that's really important to, to do. Right. Um, so we identify, and it's on our website, incarcerationnationsnetwork.com, 13, we call them 13 for the now, so it's 13 immediate steps. Things like... Reducing the prison population by 25% right, right now, um, creating, stop, stopping to criminalize poverty and looking right. at misdemeanor offenses, uh, issues that we were talking, we've touched on a number of these parole boards, uh, departments of parole and, and parole violations, these immediate steps, uh, changing the requirements for being a corrections officer, other kinds of things. And then we've got six that we call Six for the Win, which are long-term abolitionist-oriented aims, which are more along the lines of what we were just talking about, investing in credible messengers, investing in community justice centers, uh, rewriting the Constitution in a way that that actually reflects justice, divorcing capitalism and justice in all kinds of ways. And we lay out the specifics of this on the website and on our social media as well. Yeah, right. It's a it, it's very disturbing to see how many companies actually profit uh, from from prisoners, such as phone calls, electronic monitoring, fines. You know, there's some states where you know you you get released from prison and you still owe the state money because you've been imprisoned. So then they expect you to pay those fees while not being able to get a job because of your felony conviction. So I find that to be uh, you know nonsensical. Also, ending prosecutorial immunity. Um, never understood why prosecutors have immunity. If every other attorney has to get malpractice, you know, why why don't prosecutors have to get malpractice? Imagine sending someone away for for a wrongful conviction for many years losing their life. You know, that's the biggest malpractice of all. So, you know, the fact that they have immunity, um, it, it just baffles me. So, we talked about reinvesting in our communities through direct services um, and investing in peacekeeping alliances. Is all of this going to be in your new book? 
Some of it will be. Okay. Um, are we talking about the new book now? <laughs> yes, let's talk. You know, let's talk about it. So, We're waiting for that new book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 gonna be. It's gonna take some time to come. Okay, it's not gonna okay. come overnight. Um, but it's a book I've been thinking about for at least two years now, uh, maybe more. And it's called "I'm Starting a New Nation," tentatively. Okay. okay. And it came about because I started saying that. <laughs> I right, was walking right. around. You heard me say it yes, a couple yes. of years ago. Uh, and it came from this place of just being outrageously uh, fed up with our, our lack of imaginative approach to the justice system, which then bleeds into all aspects of life. And I think, as you can see from just this wide-ranging conversation alone, it's kind of reflective of the way that when you talk about what's wrong with justice, you end up all over the place because right. it's such a you know, like a like a linchpin for so many issues right. and so many aspects of society. And I just started to feel like, God, we've just got it all wrong. We've got it all wrong. And, and by we, I mean, you know, most of the world. This is not only inspired by the U.S.'s bereft system, but also a lot of my time in South Africa and other places that I love dearly, but are deeply dysfunctional and have scars at their core. And so I just started thinking about, how do we radically imagine this from square one, like from the ground up? What would it be like to just start a new nation? And at first I thought, you know what, like, first I thought, okay, I'll write a book about it. Then I thought, no, nah, I'm just going to go out and do it <laughs> and start an intentional community and, uh, and, and just enact it. And then I thought, well, let me, let me write, let me maybe do a little bit at okay. the same time. But it's the idea is to be radically just rethink things and okay. think about what people call impossible and think about what utopia means and looks like. And if we could go all out there and just, you know, reexamine the very basic premises on which we uh, we live in all aspects. So not just justice, right. certainly reimagining justice, but reimagining everything, education. If we could build the perfect world, what would it look like and how would we imagine it? And so, you know, I, I envision that I'm being influenced by all kinds of stuff. Of course, justice, which is at the core of everything that I do and think about, but also radically different experiments in, you know, communal living and, and intentional communities historically and now. Right. Um, different educational theorists, economic theory, which has been exciting for me because right. economics is not something I've thought a ton about um, and, and was trained in. So I'm learning. But I'm also thinking about science fiction. I'm thinking about Afrofuturism. That's, I've been reading a ton of, of Afrofuturism theory and fiction now in terms of, you know, going from dystopia to utopia and trying to imagine a whole new world. And so I, this had been bubbling in me for some time. And in it's just funny because during COVID times, a lot of the people who said, Boz, you're crazy, <laughs> which I don't necessarily deny, right. but... They it's they suddenly came back and said, hey, that that new nation you always used to talk about, you know, <laughs> can I get on the wait list? Um, right, right. You know that we really I thought, I thought you were going to buy like an island and just have us all come by. I mean, never say never. We don't know. We don't know how it's going to go down. Right, um, right. But I do know that there is, you know, in, in the, the pandemic is a portal. There are openings now in ways that there weren't before. Right. And. Uh, people's minds are far more open to this kind of thinking than mm -hmm. they were. And so this has actually given me some more impetus to start 
working on the book again and really put my energy into it. I also think it's the great, right now, as as I think we've both been alluding to, imagination is the great savior right, right now. Right. And so it's been really restorative to like retreat into a land of imagination that's also a land of possibilities. Right, and that's what I really liked about Incarceration Nations. It was like the perfect blend of imagination and uh, like an educational resource, um, something that can be taught in the class, but something that was just fine to just read on your way to work. Um, it was a really good read. Um, do you do you have the same intent for this book? Or I'm not sure if that was even your intent for incarceration. No, Nations. it was. Thank you, and I appreciate that because it was my intent. I wanted it to be readable. I wanted okay. it to be. It's called a journey to justice in prisons. Right. I wanted it to be a a travelogue of sorts, you right. know, and for people to come on this journey and experience it alongside me. And this book will definitely be that also. Okay. Um, but I think even more out there in terms of playing with genre and form and. Uh, and and thinking about how to do this differently, I don't. I think it'll be even more of a journey, uh, and will involve even more kind of play. Uh, I hate I hate to use that term, but because it's a it's a serious topic, but right. will be even more imaginative and in a sense playful and genre bending than incarceration nations. Great. So this I that's my imagine, little plug. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. So this is going to be a great book to be taught in classes, but also. Uh, a good book to be given to your Trump-supporting cousins as early uh, Christmas <laughs> presents. So thank you for that. Um, before we end, I, I have to do a brief little exercise with you. Um, as you know, I'm an attorney, and whenever I'm prepared for trial, I have to do this process called jury selection. Um, and in jury selection, I attempt to select jury members that I feel would be fair and reasonable towards my client. And at the end of trial... It is those 12 jurors or more that I try to obtain favor from for the sake of my client. So if we were to substitute these jurors for 12 spiritual advisors, who would they be for you? And just one simple reason why. And I know I'm catching you off guard right now. Oh, God, I got to name all 12. You know, just whatever comes to mind, whatever you can. If you can't come up with 12, that's fine. But I'll keep the number so that you know where we're at. Okay. Um, Nelson Mandela. Why? There's a, there has to be a why for Nelson Mandela. Just, no, no, but like, I know, I know my why. Nelson Mandela is actually one of my spiritual advisors. I know my why. What is your why? If you could just say it in one word. Uh, I mean, 27 years in yeah. prison and, Patience. Fit and, and endurance and resilience right. on a level. Okay. Nelson Mandela. Uh, and right after him, for the same reason, actually, is my student, the one I was talking about earlier, um, whose name I won't mention, right. but who's serving many, many years and who is the epitome of resilience and hope and has come back to life after, uh, you know, the system has tried to put him out so many times. So I'll put him on there. Right. Okay. Uh, Peter Tosh. Peter Tosh. Who's Peter Tosh? Peter Tosh is a reggae icon, member of the Whalers. <laughs> Uh, and one of my favorite reggae artists who represents kind of the beauty of revolution and the artistry of revolution. Okay. Nils Christie. He's a lesser known one, but he um, <laughs> is, was, he passed away a couple of years ago. He's in my book. I had the chance to meet him in Norway. He's a, a Norwegian 
philosopher, really, um, who uh, is has written heavily on restorative justice and and other kinds of theoretical groundings in in criminal justice, but really is a rethinker of life altogether. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Douglass. Okay. Memoir, you know, ability to take, uh, take personal experience and turn it to, you know, force and power, beauty also, uh, and, you know, political energy. In, in all kinds of ways. Okay. We're, we're halfway there. Oh, gosh, we are. <laughs> I mean, this is so unfair because I, I, I can't. There's so many that it's I like. Know. It's kind of like picking a restaurant in New York City, like, or, well, pre-COVID. You know, pre-COVID, it's like you yeah. never know where to go to eat because there's so many options that you don't, you know, know what to pick. But um, let's see. Herman Melville. Okay. 19th century American writer, who's one of my absolute favorites, uh, who wrote Moby Dick, which is one of my favorite books of all time, and uh, is also wrote, I mean, I think I've thought about Moby Dick a lot in the context of this the new book that I'm working on because it's all over the place genre-wise and he had the, the audacity to experiment and play outside the borders. Okay. Pablo Neruda. I love Pablo Neruda. Yeah. We'll put him on there. Amazing uh, poet, Chilean poet. poet. I went yes. to his house when I was living in Chile. Yeah, really? In Valparaiso, which is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. But, you know, what he he's the, the lyricist of love right. in every way, shape, the and way form. The he articulated that expression is yep. amazing. Langston Hughes. Of course. In fact, I've recently been reading some of his super short poems that just... Whew. Yeah, I mean, something about those short poems. You would never think. Yeah, there's, I mean, I'm as I was saying, pandemic has me in a serious poetry headspace because right. poetry packs a punch and emotional force and that I think we really need in this moment. Right. Bougie Bantam. Okay. We're as a 10, but as, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, that's my favorite living why, musician. Why, why Bougie Bantam? Because he's your favorite musician. Yeah, and, you know, music is music is spiritual force, right. and listening to him, without a doubt, gives me that uh, in ways that are super, super intense. Can we stop there? Yeah, that's 10. Oh, okay. okay we'll stop at 10. 10. Gotcha, that's a good number. <laughs> so, Buzz, I just wanted to say... Um, before we leave that, I want to thank you for all the work that you do and, you know, everything that you do, even when you travel and you document all of these things, you come back and you bring us those resources, you bring us, uh, awareness of these systems, but not only of these systems at play, but you bring us the voices of those that have been victimized by the system and you're doing it with the writing for wall, the, the writings on the wall with, uh, you know, we, we get to see writings of all prisoners, of many prisoners all around the world, um, and, and their voices would not be lifted, their voices would not be heard if it wasn't for what you do. You do amazing work. I appreciate you for taking the time out to sit with me. I appreciate you for being who you are. Love you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you more, and it's all I can say is it's my honor to just keep on keeping on and, and doing this work. Appreciate it. Thank you.